Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. We have a milestone episode for you this evening. This is our last episode of Stories from the Backlog. For those of you who have joined our horde of listeners later than others, Tales to Terrify had submissions open perennially for most of its existence. However, once we realized that there were some stories that had been pending for airing for literally years, we thought that might not be the best way to do things. Scott and Philip and myself got together and decided to shut down submissions for the first time in Tales to Terrify history to give us an opportunity to get the great story submitted to us out to you. And then on to a shorter turnaround time. I had suggested that we keep turnaround time from a story being accepted to airing somewhere south of six months. Well, we'll see how that goes, because we opened up our submissions after being closed for a while, right about the time the District of Wonders announced that it would be paying authors, and we got ourselves a deluge. Scott told me that the stories we accepted in January will carry us all the way through 2017. This will also mark one of the last episodes we'll do for a while that has three stories, and will end the run of episodes that are far north of an hour. Our goal is to keep the episodes a bit more moderate, somewhere around 45 minutes. One of the important things that won't change is that we'll still be airing classic horror from time to time, and I'd like to point out we take requests. If you've got a favorite that has passed into public domain, we'll take a look over it and see if it translates into our format okay. First-person narratives are usually the easiest. Stories with a catalog of characters are a bit harder to find an unpaid narrator to read just for the laurels of the read. Which brings me to an announcement. The Tales to Terrify family has grown. When we opened up our submissions, do you know how many stories we received? Over 400. At that time, it was up to Scott Silk only to wade into that and figure out what would work here and what wouldn't. I'd like to say that we stood shoulder to shoulder against the onslaught of submitted fiction, but no, he's the real champion here. 
We were able to recruit two of our loyal narrators and then deputize them to lend a hand. After all of that, we thought it would be best to make things official. Scott Silk and I are pleased to announce that Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini are now associate editors here at Tales to Terrify. Our transition from an exposure market to a paying market could have been pretty rough if it wasn't for their work, and we are happy that they are with us. Prior to this news, I had marked to spend a bit of time talking about another scary movie that I had saw at the Lost Weekend Film Festival in Winchester, Virginia. But I think that for the sake of brevity this evening, I'll just make a few quick remarks on one of them. I know that we've got quite a few listeners that really love the Twilight books and movies, and I also know that we've got quite a few that despise them. And I think that there is a bit of an overlap in there for people loving or hating because of Kristen Stewart. I have to say, I think I saw the first Twilight movie and I barely remember it. But it has been brought to my attention that post-Twilight, Kristen Stewart has become a bit of a darling for indie films. And the one I'll talk about now, Personal Shopper. The premise of the movie is that Kristen Stewart's character is staying in Paris. Her twin brother had died there months previously, and both of them understand themselves to be mediums. In life, they had pledged that whoever died first would send a sign to the surviving twin. Now, she looks for that. And she supports herself by being a personal shopper for some grade of celebrity who is barely in the movie, but seemingly everyone hates. The premise I really enjoyed. Harry Houdini had the same deal with his wife. During Houdini's life, he spent enormous amounts of energy debunking spiritualists, charlatans, and other kinds of people who would defraud anyone hoping to hear from a lost loved one. Stewart's character and her brother didn't have the foresight to agree on the precise secret signal that would identify each other, so that makes things in their story a bit more murky. As you well know, I'm hesitant to speak too ill of another person's creative work, particularly in feature films, since I've currently made zero of them. I have to say, for this one, I didn't like it. Some professional critics panned Stewart's performance, but I thought that it was satisfactory for the role. However, if you have seen, or will see, Personal Shopper, and you have a positive take on it, I'd love to hear from you. Tales to Terrify at gmail.com. I'm always willing to give a film another go with a set of fresh eyes. But enough of that. We have three stories tonight for you. The first one comes from Diane Auerbach, who we've heard from fairly recently in episode 265. Diane Auerbach is a South African novelist. Her novel Gardening at Night won the 2004 Commonwealth Writers' Prize, Best First Book, Africa and the Caribbean, and was shortlisted for the International Dublin Impact Award. In 2011, her collection of short stories, Cabin Fever, was published by Random House Struick. Her novel, Home Remedies, was published by Random House Struick in August 2012. She was shortlisted for the Kane Prize in 2014 and won the Short Story Day Africa competition the same year. She taught at Rustenburg Girls High School until 2002. Before this, she worked as a teacher of history at Cedar House and of narrative and aesthetic at AFDA, the film school both in Cape Town. Her nonfiction has appeared in The Mail and Guardian. She reviews fiction for the South African Sunday Times. Let's give a listen to Diane Auerbuck's The Keeper. Every place is three places. My grandmother 
my Ulma, liked to say that, and I'm beginning to understand what she meant. For days now the construction workers have been unearthing rusted horseshoes, empty bullets, the bones of animal companions. They are getting closer. Over it all, the iron spine of the new framework curves like a memorial. This is what Greenpoint Stadium will become once the thousands of visitors go back home to Italy, Germany, France, taking their cameras and their sunburn away with them as they pass overhead, watching those of us left here reduced to specks of builder's sand scattered and stinging in the southeaster. But all that must come later. For the moment, we are suspended in the resinous heat of February, with the mountain on fire and everywhere the sound of jackhammers and helicopters, endlessly competing to destroy and remake. There is a fine layer of ash drifting down, turning and turning in the permanent twilight before it comes to rest. When the men came yesterday, their trucks rolled like tanks through that ash, carrying hundreds of rolls of instant lawn. A million tubers trailed as they unloaded the quick grass they had severed from somewhere else, square by square, marked for transplantation. It is the only variety that will grow in the summer gale, grow this close to the sea, grow over anything, given time. Part of my job this evening is to see that the workers give it a thorough watering before they go home. From outside the stadium I watch them crawl down the girders, dumb as insects in their bright overalls. Each man has a number on his back, like football kit, like road signs, and for each man that number is the same. Ten. The yellow-backed army of next year, of hasn't happened yet, of what might be. When they leave, it will be just me in my own black uniform, unmarked by anyone, settling in for the night shift, circling uselessly. Hyena security told me to stay on the ground level, to use my eyes and not my legs, but I can't help it. The smell of the watchman's booth bothers the small hairs in my nostrils. Its planks exude the same heat and confinement I knew in my old office, in the Breakwater Museum. From my window there I first saw the earth crawlers begin the digging. I witnessed the casual horror of excavation, the raw indignity of exposure. If the drivers had looked up, they would have seen the white flag of my features through the glass, the lone pale face left there among the staff after 1994. In the days that came after, the decision was easy. I took the package. As it was, I stayed on as long as I did, only to watch the men at work. Their machines shook the foundations of the nearby skyscrapers, the lighthouse, the sewerage works. It was not that things fell apart, but they had always housed their potential collapse. I was afraid I would see their insides. And it began to seem to me after spending my life unearthing fragments and consigning them to the exile of lighted cabinets, that I should return just one to its rightful place. The thing is to bury the dead and to leave life to the living. I know that now. 
But in times of change, that distinction is a fine one, smudged over with the rough thumbs of the new dispensation, confused with the old evidence. So I am cut loose from my watch at the museum window. I no longer wear white shirts. I have more time these days to think, and there is something pleasurable in dedicating oneself to a single purpose. I am not like the other guards dozing in turns in the warmth of the booth. Lazy men, each with the roll of his gut lying patient as a snake around his middle. I saw one of them awake. He was studying for his learner's license, teaching himself the K-53, frowning down at the random rules of the road. Instead, I count my steps around the perimeter, swinging my pepper spray in my baton, feeling the weight of company issue. I walk and twitch the baton, and rub my thumb along the words engraved on the handle, We laugh last. I'm not stupid, though sometimes I pretend that I am. I ignore the insults and the half-smothered grins of the black workers. Langnus, one always calls out. Takha. They mock me in my own language. And it is true that my hair has grown shaggy in the last months, my Dutchman's nose I can do nothing about. But there is no call for neatness here. Appearance is nothing. I can walk, swinging the old defences, and consider the overtime. And as I go I can touch the thing hidden against my stomach like a colostomy bag. I remind myself why I am here. And who would break into the half-built stadium? In the few months since I was installed, the only people who have shown any interest in the place have been bosses and hard hats showing FIFA officials around and street kids needing a place to play. Who cares about empty space? The World Cup is about the visitors who will come, swarming like mosquitoes around a breathing sleeper, migrating by morning. They come to our continent craving the temporary fever of many people with one purpose, the memory of the communal fire laid down in the marrow and lost to the present. We South Africans wait for their arrival, fingering the past, hoping for recognition. Every place is three places. And Green Point has been many more than three places in its time. Van Riebeek's original Eden, the Dutch foreshore, the site of the first permanent lighthouse, a seasonal valet where the boats proudly raced, a racetrack when the dry land remained, and a prisoner of war camp. It was in that camp made of white tents that the Boer prisoners found ways to stem their frustration. My people did not allow themselves to forget their trades. There were men who sewed clothes and sculpted toys, men who printed newspapers and currency, educated men who taught the others mathematics and calligraphy in defiance of the British. And then there were the men who one morning rolled a pitch in the bare patch between the tents, smoothing the original racetrack until it was hard-packed, waiting for the rain that would turn it back to mud. They kept a constant captive's eye on the firmament and named the place Skyview, a sweet, sour joke flavoured with the expectation of disappointment. They knew what it was to be looking out over a homeland where they were not welcome. Within a year, 
the undesirables and irreconcilables would be dispersed in their thousands. To India and Portugal, St. Helena, Bermuda and Ceylon. And when they went into exile, they would take football with them, or the memory of it, where it would be translated by the feet of foreign men into the separate and idiosyncratic games it became, into the World Cup itself. When the visitors start pouring in next year, it will be as if time is running backwards with the return of the lost souls. Every place is three places. But we are not there yet. Before the exile of the past and the return of the future, there was just Votobol. My Oma used to speak of my Opa before he was my grandfather. How shiny his hair was even in the camp. Slicked back with grease, so shiny it matched his boots when he ran onto the field. The prisoners in their tight clothes came to watch him and his loose five-a-side teams that had played ball games all through their dusty free state boyhoods, before they were thrown together, before association football, before they knew they would go to war. In that camp, the spectators learned the rules of the game despite themselves, leaning into the southeaster when it blew their thin sternums against the white tents, the canvas flapping back at them like the slapping hands of the few women who attended the sick. They watched the games on days even when the wind died and the heat brought with it mosquitoes and starvation and disease. Some of them gave in to blackwater fever, or influenza, or broken hearts. Civilian curses fell on men from 16 to 60 who had so far survived British shelling, survived burnt farms and smashed pianos, survived the loss of everything they knew. But some men defied the curse. They waited until late afternoon, when the sun was lower but the light was good, waited until my shining grandfather gave the sign. And the games began, scruffy, scuffling matches that drew shouts from the spectators who surprised themselves with the store of joy still lodged in them the joy like a fever that innovated the players in their mismatched clothing, their skin turned to hoofs in lieu of boots. The summer was still so hot that they did not scrum or tackle. They could not bear the human contact. The men were content to use only their feet, moving quickly, reclaiming their bodies for pleasure instead of the terror of the last year, running towards something instead of away. One day, said my Oma, I saw it. I was there. The ball just exploded from the friction and the heat. The bladder burst, and the string and leather unravelled in the air against the black mountain. It fell back to earth with a sigh. While the players waited, one of the Jew tailors replaced the bladder and stitched it quickly back together like the skin it was. It lasted until the end of the game, and was abandoned. She gathered it up, my grandmother, the keeper, when the crowds were dispersing to their own low pots to chew over what they had seen. She hid it in her skirts, the evidence that anything can be repaired. After the war, the deflated ball rested quietly in her cabinet, year after year, marking time for the men in the tropics who first prospered and then died far from home, or came back to find that they could not start over. The bladder would be the lone survivor of the concentration camp, flat as a collapsed lung, unrecognisable. When I came to live with her, I imagined an organ, a second liver, 
a spare heart. I would wait for her to take to her sighing bed in the afternoons, and then I crept to the clawed cabinet, familiar with every squeak of the hinges, every mark on the glass. When the door swung towards me, the smell rose up from its confines, not rot, but trespass and preservation. I opened the tomb of the pharaoh. The ball itself felt dry and papery and irritable, like nostrils after a nosebleed. Its smell stayed fast in my head. Through the long, blonde years of adolescence, I kept watching, ticking. It belonged to me. It was my inheritance. But I made myself wait before I took it away. I only fetched it out from the cabinet on the day that she died. But after that, it confounded me, this flaking, undead thing, the colour of rust. It waited all the years I sat behind my curator's desk. During meetings with the new board of directors, I felt it under my sharp, ironed shirt, permanent, snug, bound by my belt like a talisman. In the last days, I had to shout above the noise of the diggers and graders. Their mindless growls interfered with negotiations. Their reverberation affected the middle ear. When I heard from the cleaners that the stadium was hiring security, the idea came to me intact. The preservation of my people could not be another crumbling artefact. For better or worse, they have made me what I am, a deflated bladder after the end of apartheid, a man thin with permanent windburn a spectator squinting from the sidelines as the world moves on. I cannot disappoint them. The stubborn ones who lost the war and were scattered over the earth like weeds, the ones who found themselves transformed into poor whites, the ones who survived to return and take their revenge. There was the chance for restitution. I myself would hold them in the cradle of my skull. I would be a guard where my people had been guarded. I would take the ball back to where it belonged. I would return it to the earth. Now that it is time, I thought it would be different. But today has been just as hot as the others. The workers leave with their familiar taunts, stripped to the waist in the lavender evening. I turn away from them into another lap along the makeshift fence. The uniform prickles in my creases, neck, elbows, knees, and I'm glad it doesn't show the sweat. The ball is a pulsing thing. Where it presses against me, I am sticky and warm. I will wait for the mist to creep in over the breakwater in the dark. When it comes, I will hook the neck of my shirt open so that for the last time I can smell the musty leather. I pause to listen for the other guards, but I can hear nothing. They are somewhere else, in the booth, maybe, playing some inexplicable game of cards, or dreaming of the return to their own countries while they fart softly in their sleep. In the sudden silence, the iron skeleton creaks, hunching after sundown like a fossil. I know how its metal will feel beneath my fingers. I know every inch of the perimeter. But there is something new, after all. The memory of the jackhammers and the sirens, that weird persistent thrum that happens between the small ear bones and sets them tingling. Something rhythmic, 
something long. The soil of the open excavation vibrates. My ribs rub together with the buzz. When I look down at my shirt, the embroidered tongue of the hyena licks out in time with my heartbeat. I strain to see further, but the mist is closing in, and my torch is back in the booth. My feet are rooted to the ground, swaddled in canvas boots unused to pursuit. I have imagined this often. It will be no surprise to see them. I have something that belongs to them. Something that also belongs to me. Whatever is coming, I am ready. After this I will find some other work that doesn't allow thinking. Dead envy. Regret. The land will take me back. I wipe my hand on my uniform and swap my grip on the baton. And then I pull out my shirt and retrieve the ball from where it has lain for so long. It pulls at my skin like surgery. When I look up, there are rows and rows of white tents, sheets drying over fences, tin shanties made from the memory of houses. And the crowds are there again, called up together for one final game, standing so close that their arms touch. The men's beards are suddenly blown back like flags against their chests. The women and children stand beside them, fluttering. Their mouths are open, their ghost voices roaring with the southeaster. Their heads are held high, smiling into the wind like dogs. And there in the middle of the dry pitch is my grandfather, before he was my grandfather, hand up to hold back the team behind him, his teeth glinting in the moonlight as he nods at me. He is waiting for the ball. That was Diane Auerbuchs, The Keeper, as read by Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is an award-winning short fiction author, editor, and podcast narrator, recipient of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best New Talent in 2014. His science fiction, dark fantasy, and horror short stories have been published in numerous venues across the world, including Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Starship Sofa, and The Mammoth Book of Dieselpunk. His vocal talents have been heard on such podcasts as Starship Sofa, right here at Tales to Terrify, Plan B, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Together with Lee Murray, he co-edited the anthologies Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, winner of the 2014 SJV for Best Collected Work and the 2014 Australian Shadows Award for Best Edited Work, and at The Edge in 2016, a collection of Antipodean dark fiction. In 2017, Hounds of the Underworld, book one of the crime-slash-horror series The Path of Ra, co-written with Lee Murray, will be released by Raw Dog Screaming Press. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. Thank you, Dan. Our second story of the night comes to us from Anna Taborska, a British filmmaker and horror writer. She has written and directed two short fiction films, two documentaries, and an award-winning TV drama. She has also worked on over 20 other films and television productions, including the BBC TV series Auschwitz, The Nazis and the Final Solution, and World War II, Behind Closed Doors, Stalin, The Nazis, and the West. 
Anna's short stories have appeared in a number of year's best anthologies, and her debut short story collection, For Those Who Dream Monsters, was published by Mortbury Press in 2013. Won the Dracula Society's Children of the Night Award and was nominated for a British Fantasy Award. A new collection of novelettes and short stories, working title Bloody Britain, is planned for release soon. Children of the Night, lend me your ears for Anna Taborska's Bagpuss. The train journey was exhausting. The removal company was going to deliver most of their things, but even the basics that Emily's mother had insisted they take themselves filled three heavy suitcases, a hold-all, and several ungainly plastic bags. Miraculously, they had managed to load everything onto the train before it departed, but Emily couldn't stop worrying about how they would get it all off at the other end. She almost dozed off during the long ride, but a horrible dream about not being able to get all the luggage off on time, of her mother disappearing and the train leaving with Emily and Bagpuss still on it, and taking them to a dark, deserted place where she got separated from Bagpuss and didn't know how to get home, woke her up, sweating and headachy. "'What is it, dear?' asked her mother in that tired, uninterested tone, the tone that Emily feared and that had been in her mother's voice ever since Emily's father had walked out one day and never come back. "'Nothing,' said Emily." Relieved that the dream had been just a dream, that she was not lost and alone, that her mother and Bagpuss were still with her. She moved the cat carrier slightly and peered in through the bars at Bagpuss, who meowed, a plaintive, pathetic, frightened little noise, cute in a kitten perhaps, but strangely unnerving in a large, lazy, eight-year-old tabby lap cat. Bagpuss had been emitting similar sounds ever since Emily and her mother had forced him into the blue cat carrier. He had struggled with all his might, wedging his paws against the plastic around the opening of the box and tensing up his entire body with strength extraordinary for a being a fraction of the size of the two humans trying to push him in. But as soon as the battle was lost and the bars of the cat carrier came down before his eyes, he started mewling in the tiny yet eerily penetrating way of an unwanted kitten destined for a stone-laden sack at the bottom of a lake. It's okay, Emily told him. I'm here. I won't let anything bad happen to you. Bagpuss had been with Emily since he was six weeks old, but he had been silent as a kitten and had only found his tongue at a later age sparsely using a low, gruff meow to indicate that he was hungry or wanted to go outdoors. Mostly, he would lie on Emily's lap, purring loudly, and sometimes even snoring. So the eerie little squeaks and cries were something new and distressing to his twelve-year-old mistress, as new and distressing as having to leave her city life and move to the countryside, away from her room, her house, her street, and everything that made her feel safe. New things, new places, new people had no appeal to her. They gave her a nasty, tight sensation in the pit of her stomach, a feeling like something really bad was about to happen, a feeling that had increased in frequency since her father had left. 
Now that they were on the train and heading for her new home, the feeling of impending doom was stronger than ever, and Emily was convinced that Bagpuss felt it too. How many more stations before we get there? Emily asked her mother. I don't know, dear. You have to ask someone, Mummy. Why? We have to get ready to get off the train before it reaches the station. Otherwise, we won't have time to get everything off. Of course we will. But we have to get ready before we get to the station, Mummy. Emily's agitation was starting to break through the protective barrier of the Valium and worry her mother. The child had always been timid and oversensitive, but lately she was stressing about everything. Emily's mother tried to remember being twelve. She had been brought up in the country and remembered her childhood as being full of sunny days, helping out on the farm, messing around with other children in the hay in the barn, unstressed and carefree. Worrying about global warming or the international economy never even occurred to anyone. Life just flowed one day at a time, riding bicycles, running down to the river to fish or remove socks and shoes and paddle, sometimes getting her turned-up trousers wet and muddy, and her mother telling her off for being dirty when she came home. Not like Emily, who had always worried about everything. And, of course, her father leaving provided the perfect opportunity for Emily's anxiety to run wild. Perhaps life in the country would be good for Emily. Perhaps a new start in life was what they both needed. As they pulled into the village station, all their things were already by the train door, at Emily's insistence, of course, and Emily was firmly clutching Bagpuss's cat carrier to her chest. Mommy, I'll go first and put Bagpuss down, and then I'll help you get the suitcases down. But you'll have to pass them to me because I don't want to leave Bagpuss on his own on the platform because someone might steal him. Nobody's going to steal Bagpuss. Well, a dog might attack the cat carrier and Bagpuss might get hurt. Nothing's going to happen to Bagpuss, sighed Emily's mother. Yes, but you don't know that, Mummy. I have to stay on the platform with him to make sure he doesn't think we've abandoned him and get scared. Very well, Emily. You stay on the platform with Bagpuss and I'll pass the bags down to you. The unloading went smoothly. Apart from Bagpuss's desperate mewling as his miniature prison got moved again and the cat temporarily lost the ground under his feet his whole world shaking and lurching until Emily placed the carrier down on the platform, on solid ground now, but still imprisoned and claustrophobic. There were no cabs at the station, but the station master phoned for one, and after a long wait, a man in his sixties arrived and somehow helped them load all their belongings into his battered old Ford. The man chatted away to Emily's mother and eyed her with an interest that made Emily nervous. The girl ignored the cab driver and concentrated her attentions on Bagpuss, who had fallen deathly quiet in his sweaty prison. It's a ten-minute drive, her mother had told her, and five minutes into the journey, the feeling of impending doom in Emily's stomach had grown to a level which made her want to clutch her abdomen. Instead, she hugged Bagpuss's cage tightly. The cat yelped, 
and Emily was certain that he was sharing her fear of what was to come. Five minutes later, and the three of them, Emily, Emily's mother, and Bagpuss in his plastic cage, were standing in front of their new home. Emily's mother had turned down the cab driver's repeated offer of helping them carry their bags into the house, but had taken the business card on the back of which he had jotted his home phone number. And Emily finally understood the feeling in the pit of her stomach that she'd had since she was little, the feeling that crept over her in the middle of the day or in the dead of night, the feeling that grew as she tossed and turned in her bed, formless and indescribable until it took shape and found expression in her nightmares and anxiety dreams, those dreams of finding ourselves naked in front of others, of facing an examination paper without knowing the curriculum, of fleeing something unspeakable along corridors that get narrower and narrower until we can scarcely breathe. Emily trembled as she looked up at the old house and knew that the recurrent feelings of impending doom had all led to this, the brooding dark house whose eaves cast a shadow that somehow managed to reach her and make her shiver on this fine summer afternoon, a house whose dark corners would devour her and her mother and her cat. Even the roses climbing ramshackle up the walls of the house were the color of congealed blood, their scent suffocating, their thorns waiting to scar anyone who came close. But worse still, worse than the house with its bloody roses and windows gaping like cataract-covered eyes, was the untamed expanse of land behind the house, a wasteland of strange plants and scents, overrun with bushes and moss, grass and meadow flowers, and beyond the wilderness, a dark tree line looming ominously on the horizon. Emily felt faint. All she had ever known were the familiar streets of the city in which she had lived all her life, streets with names that made sense and instilled a feeling of security. First Avenue, Second Avenue, Third Avenue. Streets which crisscross each other at reliable right angles, forming orderly squares with houses and shops where they intersected. Even the parks were safe. The grass neatly mown, the trees arranged symmetrically, planted evenly apart, their branches trimmed regularly so they could not grow into monstrous limbs which reached for you and tried to drag you into a scratching, deadly embrace. Emily was horrified by the vast, uncontrolled expanse of land behind the old house, grasses and sheaths of wild barley ready to impale anyone who ventured among them, tangled roots and prickly branches ready to curl themselves around an ankle and bring its owner crashing into the spider-infested undergrowth. Bagpuss mewed wildly in his cat carrier, no longer a tiny pitiful squeal, but a feral, desperate cry, and threw himself against the bars, rattling the plastic cage so hard that Emily feared it would overturn and harm her pet. She carried the box with the wailing, thrashing animal up to the house, and once her mother unlocked the door, inside. Emily made sure the front door was securely closed again, put down the cage, and opened it carefully. Bagpuss sprang out faster than Emily thought possible and headed straight for the front door, scratching at it feverishly. You'd better let him out, Emily's mother told her. 
I have to open the door in any case to bring our bags in. But Mummy, he'll be fine. Okay, but I'll want to go with him. Don't you want to have a look around the house? Emily cast a fearful glance past her mother at the murky hallway with doors leading off it and the winding staircase leading up into darkness. Maybe later, she told her mother, and turned her attention back to the frantically meowing and scratching cat. As soon as Emily opened the front door, Bagpuss bolted out like the proverbial bat out of hell and took off down the porch steps. Bagpuss, wait! The cat reached the bottom of the steps and paused, looking around, sniffing the air, droopy whiskers and fluffy tail twitching nervously. Bagpuss had never known a world such as this. His cruel imprisonment in the evil-smelling plastic cage was all but forgotten, as a universe of magnificent scents, sights, and sounds burst open all around him. It was as though he had sleepwalked through his life, and now, finally, he was wide awake, his nerves tingling with excitement and the blood singing in his veins. Bagpuss hardly noticed as Emily caught up with him and spoke to him softly. There you are, Bagpuss. Emily reached down and stroked the cat gently. Bagpuss became aware of his friend next to him and looked up at her, purring loudly. He could smell the lush scent of the roses clinging to the walls of the house behind him. He could smell other wildflowers and herbs. He could smell birds and mice and other small creatures in the bushes around him. But Bagpuss could smell something else, too. An alluring, intoxicating scent, and it was calling him. The cat quivered from the tip of his pink nose to the tip of his black and gray tail, then set off at a trot. Bagpuss, wait! Emily ran after her pet, terrified of losing sight of him. She found him standing behind the house, gazing across the expansive meadow toward the woods on the horizon. Bagpuss's nose twitched as he took in that wonderful scent. It was the smell of the warm grass before him. It was the scent of open space, the scent of freedom. He took off across the field. No, Bagpuss, you're going too far! Emily followed her cat, trying not to fall as the branches of strange plants curled around her ankles, increasingly distressed as she kept losing sight of the cat in the tall grass. As Bagpuss bounded over the exotic landscape, the breeze ruffled his fur, and the sounds of birdsong and of small frightened creatures scurrying away through the grass caressed his ears. Even through all the new scents of herbs, flowers, and animals, Bagpuss noticed another stronger smell. He slowed down. Years of dozing on Emily's sofa had taken their toll on his natural feline stamina, but continued to press ahead until the strange new scent was joined by a rushing, gurgling sound. As he navigated the last few meters of grass between him and the noisy thing ahead, Emily cried out behind him, "'Oh, my God! No, Bagpuss, no!' but Bagpuss had already burst out onto the riverbank and was staring down at the river, narrow at this point, only a few meters across, silver and blue-gray, 
light dancing between the brown and dark green reflections of the trees that grew on its other side. As the cat stared in awe at the flowing water, the dancing light, he caught sight of movement made by something more solid. It was a fish. Bagpuss carefully made his way down to the water and contemplated sticking in a paw. Bagpuss, no! In the second that it took Bagpuss to glance back at Emily, the fish was gone. Then Emily was picking him up, enveloping him gently in her arms, her scent familiar and soporific. You mustn't go near the river. It's not safe. Bagpuss was disappointed to be leaving the riverbank, but he was tired now, and after an initial half-hearted squirm, he allowed himself to be carried back to the house. That night, it took Emily a long time to get to sleep. The latter part of the day had passed uneventfully, apart from unpacking their suitcases and bags. The men from the removal company were not due until the following morning, and Emily's mother had brought enough food to do the three of them for dinner and for breakfast the following morning. Emily had nervously explored the house and put away the few items of clothing that she had brought with her in the large old wardrobe of the room that her mother had chosen for her. The room was somber enough during the day, but at night darkness lay thick in its nooks and crannies, and the tree outside sent restless shadows scuttling over Emily's window and scratched at the glass panes when the breeze stirred it. When the last light had faded from the sky, the darkness outside was profound, nothing like the polluted orange glow of city night. Emily pulled her blanket up to her chin and listened fearfully to the silence, broken only by Bagpuss snoring at the foot of her bed, but even the comforting sound of the sleeping cat did little to still Emily's racing heart. When she finally fell asleep, Emily dreamt of the frightening expanse of land leading down to the river behind the house and the verdant darkness of the woods beyond. She was trying to keep sight of Bagpuss among the long grass and meadow flowers. It was magic hour, and the field around Emily glowed in the eerie, beautiful alien light. The smell of the flowers and wild herbs was at its strongest, the sultry remains of the hot day enhancing the various scents, making them intoxicating, stifling. Bagpuss, wait! As Emily hurried in the direction where she had just seen the tip of Bagpuss's tail disappear, she became aware that she was not alone out here with her cat. She slowed down, looking around nervously, and shrieked as a flash of dry lightning lit up the field and she spotted eyes in the grass all around, watching her. Emily started to panic, glancing this way and that into the grass, and the hundreds of cornflowers stared back at her, their piercing cornflower eyes unnaturally blue in the strange light, staring at Emily suspiciously, accusingly, as if they knew something about her that she didn't know herself. Emily trembled, then, seeing her cat leaping over a clump of dandelions some way ahead, she moved to head off after him, but stopped again as an ear-rending screech silenced the insects in the grass nearby. Emily looked around fearfully. The screech came again, and that was when she saw the poppy. The flower stared at Emily, then swayed from side to side on its stem, 
until it seemed to hemorrhage into a cockerel with a deep red plumage and a scarlet crest. As Emily watched, horrified, the thing continued to shake itself violently until its crest dripped blood, rending open its fear-poisoned beak and screaming at Emily until she turned and raced towards the river and the dark tree line beyond. As she ran, Emily noticed the single ears of wild barley growing here and there in the field. She tried to skirt around one, but skimmed it with her foot and stopped as the plant glistened with a golden hue. Emily stared as the plant bristled its husk angrily and, emitting a hollow rattling sound, ground itself into a golden hedgehog and ran from Emily, pricking the slender wild herbs that stood in its way. Emily clapped her hands to her temples and headed for the river, a terrible fear for Bagpuss rising within her. As soon as it had come, magic hour was over, and the last of the light bled from the sky. As Emily reached the bank of the river, she heard a loud splash, and she cried out, Bagpuss! Bagpuss! But there was no answer, no familiar meow, only a faint splash in the river some distance away. Emily stared into the inky depths of the river, and finally she saw Bagpuss, a little way off, his paws flailing helplessly as he tried to stay afloat. As Emily jumped into the cold river, an undercurrent suddenly caught Bagpuss and pulled him under the dark water. Emily screamed and threw herself in the direction of her beloved pet. For a moment, Bagpuss's head bobbed up above water, and Emily half swam, half ran towards him, but the current got a hold of Bagpuss and carried him away downstream. Tears streaming down her face, Emily swam after her cat. Darkness had set in fast, and Emily could hardly distinguish the black water from the blackness all around her. She could just make out Bagpuss ahead of her, tossed about by the current. With a huge effort, she finally reached him and pulled him out of the water, clutching him to her, and managed to get him to shore. Wet through, he was no longer big and fluffy, but small and vulnerable. She tried to warm his little body against her neck and shoulder, but he was stone cold and limp. Wake up, Bagpuss, wake up, she begged, but it was too late. Emily cried and cried and hugged Bagpuss's dead body until she woke up to find her pet very much alive, his nose pressed up against her face, eyeing her with a look of concern. Oh, Bagpuss, cried Emily, and squeezed the surprised cat until he yelped and removed himself to the armchair in the corner of the room. The next morning, Bagpuss woke Emily bright and early, demanding to be let out. Emily refused to open the front door and clapped her hands over her ears, ignoring the cat's urgent meowing. It wasn't until Emily's mother found a pool of cat pee by the front door that Emily was reprimanded and, after much debate and tear-shedding, Bagpuss was allowed to explore the boundlessness of the land behind the house once more. The men from the removal company arrived with the rest of the clothes, the furniture, kitchen utensils, Emily's prized collection of stones and pebbles, which Emily laid out according to size on the large windowsill in her bedroom, and the thing that Emily had been waiting for most, Bagpuss's cat litter. 
Emily hoped the bagpuss would start relieving himself in the litter again and wouldn't need to leave the house. But her hopes were dashed as the cat spurned the litter entirely and spent all of the time that he was awake either outdoors or sitting by the front door begging to be let out. As time wore on, Emily found herself increasingly alone. Bagpuss no longer sat on her lap or played with the cloth mouse that she sometimes dragged around in front of him on a piece of string. He still slept in Emily's room, but he was coming home increasingly late and demanding to be let out increasingly early. During the day, Emily would try to follow Bagpuss, spending as much time outdoors among the heady-scented flowers and crawling insects as her mother would allow, trying to make sure that nothing happened to her cat. But when Emily's mother insisted on her doing chores or accompanying her to the village grocery store or doing some homework in preparation for the beginning of term in her new school once summer was over, Emily spent every moment worrying about Bagpuss. When her mother made her go to bed before Bagpuss came home, Emily would lie awake, her mind conjuring up blood-curdling images of her beloved pet drowning, being torn apart by foxes being decapitated by local juvenile delinquents, fancying themselves as Satanists, being bitten by a rabid batter, getting stuck in a rabbit hole and starving to death. In those dark, lonely hours, Emily imagined every horror possible, except... The car was a brand-new bottle-green Land Rover driven by a 24-year-old banker. It was difficult to put the SUV through its paces in London, too many speed cameras, but the winding country lanes in this part of the world were just bliss. You could easily do the curves at 90 miles an hour, and the straight stretches of road, well, there was no limit, only the size of your balls. The mouse was small and gray and running for its life. Bagpuss could tell that it was tiring, and he fancied his chances. All the time he had spent roaming the wilderness behind the house and chasing any critter that was smaller than him had paid off. His portliness had been replaced by a firm layer of muscle, and his senses were no longer dulled by hours of snoozing in front of the TV. He had yet to actually catch something, but today was going to be the day. He'd nail the damn mouse, but he wouldn't eat it himself. He would carry it up to Emily's room and place it on her bed to show her how much he loved her. The mouse sprinted past the house, Bagpuss hot on its tail. Blind with fear, the mouse burst onto the main road that led to the village, and the cat leapt after it. The impact with the metal grill threw Bagpuss into the air, and he landed in the road, the Land Rover's shining silver alloy wheels directing the entire weight of the vehicle onto his small furry body. The SUV didn't even slow down. The mouse disappeared into the undergrowth on the far side of the road, and as dusk fell, a fox snatched up what was left of Bagpuss and carried it back to its hungry family. Emily waited for Bagpuss to come home. She polished her stones and pebbles over and over, hardly aware of what she was doing. At midnight, her mother caught her trying to sneak out of the house to look for her pet and sent her wailing up to bed. Emily spent most of the night peering out of her window into the darkness beyond and eventually cried herself to sleep as the dawn chorus started up outside her window. 
the days that followed were akin to a never-ending version of one of emily's anxiety dreams she spent every free moment of daytime wandering around the wilderness at the back of the house calling bagpuss's name at night the silence was unbearable the tree outside her window scratched the glass like nails on a chalkboard and the shadows in her room crowded around her menacingly ever since her father had left bagpuss had slept in emily's room his snoring making her giggle, but never keeping her awake for long. And, as with the time after her father left, Emily was in a permanent state of suspension, waiting rather than living, the anxious feeling in her stomach making her nauseous with dread. As Emily's anxiety grew, she developed a fear of being alone, especially at night. One night when a strong breeze animated the tree in a particularly alarming way, she turned up in her mother's room and asked if she could sleep with her. No, Emily's mother replied, her voice groggy with valium-induced sleep. You're far too old for that. Emily returned to her own room and cried the night away. About midday, she was woken by the sound of the phone ringing. She went downstairs and peered into the kitchen, where she could see her mother speaking on the telephone, her face disconcertingly lively, not at all like the tired, resigned face that Emily had grown accustomed to. Emily asked her mother who had called. No one, her mother replied, looking embarrassed and quickly changing the subject. That day, Emily didn't go out to look for Bagpuss, but followed her mother around the house, even offering to accompany her to the grocery store. For the next few days, Emily went everywhere with her mother, and now sat watching tensely as her mother relaxed, reading a Mills and Boone novel after finishing the housework. Eventually, Emily's mother could stand her intent gaze no longer. "'Shouldn't you be out looking for Bagpuss?' she asked. "'He's not coming back,' Emily replied morosely. They never do. What's that supposed to mean? Nothing. Emily dropped her gaze to the floor. Well, why don't you call those nice girls we met at the grocery store the other day? I'm sure they'd love to play with you. I'd rather stay here with you. Well, you're going to need to find something to occupy yourself with by the weekend. I'm going out on Saturday. What? Emily looked like she'd been slapped in the face. I'm going out on Saturday. Don't look so shocked. I have a right to a life, you know. Where are you going? To a dance. Who with? Les. Who's Les? Emily was looking increasingly frightened. Les, the man who drove us here? The cab driver? He drives a cab to earn a living, but he's really a writer. Emily was trying hard to get a handle on what was happening. After a long pause, she asked, Can I come? No, Emily, you can't come. Fine, said Emily, and ran out of the room so that her mother wouldn't see the tears welling up in her eyes. Her mother was going to leave her. With the cab driver. First her father, then Bagpuss, and now her mother. 
Emily would die here, in this big, dark house, get sick and die all alone, and by the time they found her body, it would be mauled by rats and covered in spiders, and flies would have laid eggs in her, and she would be crawling with maggots. She had to stop her mother leaving. Emily put her coat on and headed out of the house. Where are you going? Her mother came out of the sitting room. I'm going to play with the kids we met at the grocery store. Oh. Her mother was surprised by this sudden U-turn. Then again, Emily was almost a teenager now, and her strange, unpredictable behavior was probably just a symptom of her age. It was getting late by the time Emily returned from the Internet Cafe, hiding a bunch of printouts behind her back as her mother questioned her about what she had been doing with the girls from the grocery store. Emily seemed calmer at dinner than she had been for a while, and her mother was pleased that her new friends were helping her to get over Bagpuss's disappearance. But Emily was more anxious than ever, and that night she had the nightmare again. She was stumbling after Bagpuss through the meadow at the back of the house, the sky lit up by dry lightning, and the flowers and weeds mutating painfully into grotesque animals and birds that pecked and snapped at her heels, screeching wildly. The sky grew darker, and as Emily reached the river, she heard a splash and threw herself into the inky water, crying out her pet's name. But as Emily reached the spot where her cat had gone under the water for the last time, as she dived down and grabbed him, it was not Bagpuss she pulled out of the murky depths. It was the pale-faced corpse of her mother. Emily screamed and woke herself up. She got out of bed and crept to her mother's room, standing silently for long minutes and listening to her mother's regular breathing as she slept. Emily was determined to go through with her plan, and she had to act fast as Saturday was only two days away. The poison was easy enough to buy, as many of the rural houses had problems with rats and the local store stocked a variety of rodent-killing products. Emily's research provided her with all the information she needed to carry out her plan. The idea had first come to her when she remembered a murder mystery she had seen on television. A man had killed his wife over the period of a year by giving her small amounts of poison in her food. Too small to kill her immediately, but enough to make his wife progressively more sick until eventually she died. Of course, Emily did not want to kill her mother, quite the opposite. She wanted her mother to stay with her forever. She would never give her mother enough poison to make her really sick, just enough to make her feel a little poorly. Emily would look after her mother and tend to her every need so that after a while, her mother would not even want to go out. She would come to rely on Emily, to appreciate her, and be grateful for her company and she certainly would not want to leave with the cab driver. That evening, Emily's mother was in a strange mood. It would have been her 14th wedding anniversary if her husband hadn't left her. She couldn't, for the life of her, remember if she had taken her Valium or not. Emily was being neurotic again, following her around the house and trying to talk to her, but she was far too tired to cope with Emily's quirks today. Emily surprised her by making her a cup of hot chocolate. 
She took the mug, but decided to drink it in bed. Emily's mother placed the mug on her bedside table and went to the bathroom cabinet. Perhaps she hadn't taken her Valium after all. She took one out of the prescription bottle and, after a moment's consideration, she took out another. She took the pills through to her bedroom and, climbing in the bed, washed them down with the hot chocolate. After a while, she started to feel sick. She doubled up in pain and reached out for the bedside table to steady herself, knocking off the lamp, which smashed on the floor. Emily heard the noise in her mother's room and rushed over. The sight that greeted her was more terrifying than any nightmare she had ever had. Her mother was thrashing around in the bed, blood and vomit all over her nightgown. Mommy! By the time the ambulance arrived, the suffering of Emily's mother was over. After pronouncing the woman dead, the paramedic looked around the house for the girl who had called in to say that her mother was very sick. Emily headed across the wilderness, her movements slowed by the stones and pebbles that were stretching the pockets of her coat. She barely noticed the nettles that stung her ankles and the thistles that scratched her arms. Her eyes were fixed on the tree line beyond the river, and she thought she could see the tip of Bagpuss's tail ahead of her in the darkness. As she reached the river bank, there was a splash, and the inky water closed over her head as she fell forward and allowed the stones in the current to pull her down. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That was Anna Taborska's Bagpuss, as read by... Summer Brooks. Summer is a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use for interviewing filmmaking, cast, and crew. She has been co-host for Slice of Sci-Fi from 2005 to 2009 and the co-host for the Babylon podcast from 2006 to 2012 before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi full-time as host and producer in August of 2014. She is an avid reader and writer of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy tale and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Currently, Summer designs and maintains websites for clients, in addition to having fun with the Slice of Sci-Fi websites, and also does voiceover and narrations for us here at Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod, among others. Thank you, Summer. And seeing us the rest of the way home tonight will be a story from Peter White. He is married with two children and lives in London, England. He works in the pharmaceutical industry and has recently taken up writing short stories in his spare time. Peter spent much of his childhood either begging his parents to be allowed to stay up late to watch the late-night horror movie or else sneaking downstairs when he thought they were asleep to watch it anyway. And this is apparently pretty much everything he has written so far. Listen with me to Peter White's Used Cars. Edgar gazed out on a sea of rusting bodywork, broken axles and rotting hulks canted on shot suspensions, the green weeds growing from the cracks in the concrete providing a stark contrast to the bleached background. Firecracker red and midnight blue long since faded to muddy pink and dirty gray under the South California sun. The edge of the lot was marked by a series of short wooden stakes linked by a plastic chain, but the decay continued beyond this flimsy boundary. The graffiti-covered metal shutters permanently down on the windows of the liquor store across the street, while the door remained open, no matter what the hour. Not that you could see anything through the opening, Day or night, it was a solid black rectangle. A Samoan with a baseball bat sat outside on a busted couch, and Edgar guessed he was the one who had busted it. This motherfucker had to be 400 pounds easy, and some of it might even have been muscle. Next to the liquor store on one side was a laundromat, closed, and next to that, a pawnbroker, open. After that, Nothing but empty lots overgrown with more weeds. On the other side, in the shadow of the overpass, a tired old whore in a pink tube top and fetish heels jiggled her sagging breasts, bending over to show off her bony ass every time a car passed. Edgar had been here three days now, and if he stayed here much longer, she was going to start looking pretty good to him. If he was honest with himself, he wasn't fussy at the best of times. On his side of the street there was a storage warehouse to the right and a gas station to the left. 
The gas station was keeping him alive at the moment. He knew there was a grocery store two blocks away, but he also knew how many winos, crack addicts, gangbangers, and other assorted lowlifes he would have to pass to get to it. Plus, Pablo was out there somewhere. A two-liter bottle of soda and a microwave burrito became surprisingly appetizing if the price of a decent meal was a dirty switchblade between the ribs. He rubbed his eyes and let the blind fall back against the office window. Oh, Uncle Jaime, you dirty, rotten, cheating son of a whore. Props to you, old man. Props to you. The old man had come to him three months ago. When Edgar had opened the door and seen him standing there on the stoop, he thought that old Uncle Jaime had looked like an undertaker's wet dream. He didn't recognize him at first, of course, and not just because he looked like hell. Before that day, he hadn't seen Jaime in twenty years. Jaime had been his mother's youngest brother. A go-getter, she said. A man of means, she said. A self-made success story, she said. Over and over she said these things to Edgar, but only if Edgar's father, the high school janitor, was in earshot. Edgar's father wouldn't say anything during these little pep talks, but Edgar could see his knuckles turning white as he fumed silently behind his newspaper. His father, who couldn't afford to run one car and who walked an hour each way to work every day from their apartment building, remained silent as Edgar's mother told him how Jaime had been his own boss since he was 18 and how he owned the most successful independent auto dealership in SoCal. They visited twice a year, taking the Greyhound bus across country to stay for a long weekend. Edgar remembered the cars, shiny and bright and big. He would wander around the lot, running his fingers over hot metal reading the names on the badges and repeating them to himself under his breath. While he did this, his father would be in the office pulling a tight smile as Jaime told him how good business was and how, any time he wanted to ship the family out to the West Coast, he could use an assistant. Edgar's father would pull his smile a little tighter and say, Well, maybe one day, and then take another small sip of his beer. This was when Edgar was a boy, before he hit his teens. His father left when he was eleven, and his mother shut up about good old Uncle Jaime pretty damn quick after that. The visits stopped, too, as if his mother didn't actually care too much for the man herself, unless she could use him as a stick to beat her useless husband with. But Edgar remembered his Uncle Jaime. His rich Uncle Jaime, who had turned up on Edgar's doorstep looking for a home... He had come looking for little Susie, which was what he had always called Edgar's mother, even though he was younger and her name wasn't Susie. It was a childhood thing between them, apparently, something to do with the song. Edgar had buried his mother two years earlier, a stroke. When he broke this bit of news, he thought that his uncle might demand to know why he hadn't been told, but he just nodded and sighed. That's why I didn't phone you first, cause we wasn't talking so much. Weren't talking at all, thought Edgar, but he kept it to himself. I figured if I showed up and she saw, well, she saw how I look, there's no point beating around the bush. I'm dying, Edgar. No shit, 
He kept that to himself as well. I don't want to be alone. Now little Susie's gone and you're all the family I got left. All the family you got left, maybe, but not all you got left. How's the car business these days, I wonder? Edgar smiled as he stooped to pick up his uncle's single battered suitcase. He had a very good smile, warm and trustworthy, so much so that it always succeeded in distracting from the coldness in his eyes. You're staying with me, Uncle Jaime. I won't take no for an answer. This was meant to be. A week earlier, he had made a mistake. When he approached the woman at the bar and offered to buy her a drink, she told him that she was waiting for her boyfriend, and he said, Sure, no problem. Then he had smiled that winning smile of his and added, Can't blame a guy for trying, right? And gave her a wink. And she laughed and gave him a smile back. As he had sunk back into the shadows of the booths that lined the walls, he knew she wasn't waiting on anyone. A sexy little number like that didn't wait for her boyfriend alone in bars. She certainly didn't do it wearing little cut-off denim shorts and a halter top that let you know she wasn't wearing a bra. Not that she needed one, in Edgar's opinion. As far as he could see, everything seemed to be supporting itself very nicely. She was here for a good time, and the boyfriend's story was her way of checking him out. If he was a creep, he wouldn't take no for an answer. But he had been a good boy, and her smile had let him know that she appreciated that. So, he waited for her in the shadows. After all, she was entitled to keep her eyes open for a better prospect if she wanted. It was a free market economy. But in an hour or so, Maybe after a couple more drinks, she would come to him, tell him she'd been stood up and how about it. Did he want to show her that he knew how to treat a woman right? But it didn't play out like that. She ordered another drink, but from where Edgar was watching, it looked like she might have changed out the mojitos for plain orange juice. Whatever she had planned for the night, getting drunk did not seem to be on the agenda. He also saw that she kept looking at her watch. That might have been show to put off the other creeps in the bar. Edgar wasn't the only one hanging back in the shadows, but she sure did look like she was waiting on someone. Then, after an hour, she checked her watch one last time, got up, and left. One of the connections in Edgar's head full of bad wiring burned itself out. It hadn't gone according to plan, and Edgar didn't like things that did not go according to plan. He did not have contingencies because he didn't believe that he could be wrong. His left eye began to twitch. Edgar sat there for almost five minutes before he got up and followed her out the door. He hadn't been wrong, he decided. She had been wrong. Edgar thought the best thing he could do was to give her the chance to explain herself up close and personal. It wasn't until afterwards that he found out just how wrong she was. She wasn't local. He made it his business to know all the local girls. And he was confident that the boyfriend had been bullshit. Still, someone seemed to know she was missing. A week after the bar, he was on his way home from the store with a newspaper and a carton of milk when he was stopped dead in his tracks. 
a flyer fixed to a telegraph pole flapped lightly in the breeze. It was fixed with a staple at the top, but not the bottom. On the flyer was a picture of the girl from the bar. It was a black and white photostat, and in the picture she was wearing a summer dress and smiling at someone or something unseen. She looked beautiful. Edgar looked up and down the street to see who was around, then used one hand to smooth out the flyer and hold it flat against the pole. Have you seen this girl? ran across the top. At the bottom it read, Reward for information. Call. And there was a phone number. Edgar left the flyer where it was and walked back to the house looking as outwardly calm as he could. His eye twitched just twice before he got it under control. At home, he spread out the newspaper on the kitchen table and went through it page by page, story by story, front to back. When he was satisfied that there was no mention of a missing girl, he went to the trash and recovered all of the papers that he had thrown away since the last collection. There were a half dozen, and he went through all of these as well. Nothing. There had been nothing on the local news reports either. Not that he remembered, at least, and he watched them most days. Edgar struggled to get a handle on the situation. It was an unforeseen problem, and its nature was not entirely clear. Did the flyers indicate that the police weren't interested? Maybe a week was still early for a missing person case, so it was plausible that they had been posted by a worried relative or boyfriend frustrated by the slow-turning wheels of law enforcement. But the girl hadn't been local. He still felt sure of that. So who had put the flyers up? If she was meeting someone local, then, as far as they knew, she had never showed up. So why post flyers around here? Did that make sense? There was a lot to trouble Edgar, but he held on to the fact that, so far... No one apart for himself knew the girl was dead. The way that he had taken care of the body, no one was likely to just stumble across that particular piece of information, and the police were not interested. Yet. But if the cops did start asking questions, then someone in the bar would no doubt remember that he was there. And maybe they would remember that he had left around the same time as the girl. Without a body, would that matter? Could they take him in and sweat him? Would he crack if they did? Would it be better to just go now? Or would that be just bringing unnecessary attention to himself? He was disturbed to find out how little he actually knew about how these things worked, years of watching CSI and Law and Order notwithstanding. And then good old Uncle Jaime showed up to save the day. Jaime, who was not long for this world. Jaime, who was desperate not to be alone. Jaime, who was a man of independent means without an heir. And best of all, Jaime, who was a ready-made alibi should the need arise. Why, yes, officer. I did stop by O'Harrigan's for a beer or two on the evening in question. And I do believe I may have even passed the time of day with the lady in question. But no, I didn't happen to see what time she left. I myself had to leave early to care for my poor dying uncle. 
and good old Uncle Jaime would say, Yes, that's exactly right, officer. I remember that very night clearly. Edgar did go out to the bar. He didn't want to because he worries so much about me. But I insisted on it. And I know he must have come straight home after he left, because the pain was bad that night, and I couldn't get the top off my Oxycontin bottle. Can't sleep without it when the pain's bad. I remember Edgar coming in and giving me my pill. And I was in my bed by eleven. Oh, Edgar just felt awful about that. Uncle Jaime would say all this and try not to dwell too much on why Edgar might need an alibi and why Edgar's eye twitched when he talked about that night because Uncle Jaime was scared of being left alone. And just to make sure Edgar was planning to do a bang-up job of looking after his favorite uncle, he would shop for him, keep him company, go to his appointments with him, and make talk about old times. About how much he'd loved the dealership when he was a boy. About what a shame it was Uncle Jaime had never had any kids of his own. No one to carry on the business for him. Edgar could be pretty slick with the psychological shit when he wanted to be. Judging by the way he looked, the old ghoul didn't have much more than two or three months left in him. He didn't want him haunting the house for that long, but it would probably take that long to be sure there wasn't going to be any heat from cops. So in practical terms, it was pretty perfect, really. Or so it had seemed at first. Six months, the old bastard had held on for. Six months, history's longest death rattle. He wheezed, he coughed, he snored, he farted. Sometimes he cried and Edgar would lie awake, listening to him sobbing quietly in the next room, wondering how hard he would struggle if he woke to find a pillow being pressed down over his face. Not too hard at all, thought Edgar. You're a good boy, Edgar. You were always a good boy. His thick gray tongue darted out to lick his cracked lips nervously before continuing. I couldn't stand to die in the hospital, surrounded by strangers and machines. You're giving your old uncle a chance to die with dignity. That's the most you can do for any man. You should be very proud of yourself. And it was only after he was gone, after Edgar had gone into the darkened room to wake his uncle and found the dark blood mixed with drool on the pillow next to his mouth, only then did he realize that despite all of the soiled sheets, the old man had still been full of it right up until the end. Dignified or not, the hospital hadn't been an option. Jaime didn't have any health insurance. He didn't even have a doctor. Clearing out the little bedside cabinet, Edgar realized that his uncle had been self-medicating with somebody else's supply. Several somebodies, in fact. There were at least half a dozen different names, male and female, spread across the labels. It was easy enough, Edgar supposed. Even apart from the hillbilly heroin, most junkies had a pretty good pharmacy going. Like magpies attracted by the shiny silver of a blister pack, they tended to hoard, and they weren't fussy about what. 
Sooner or later, someone would want it, and that someone just might have a welfare check burning a hole in their pocket. Shit. Okay, so no money to speak of. No liquid assets, anyway. But the old man had been as good as his word. He had signed over the business to his loving nephew, and that had to be good for something. Even if the business was going down the tubes, there was the stock that had to be worth something. And then there was the lot itself. Prime California real estate. Yeah, there was money there, all right. Edgar could practically taste it. He just needed an unsentimental soul who wasn't adverse to a bit of asset stripping. There had been mention of some sort of Hispanic assistant come car washer, Pablo. He might kick up a fuss, but he could just go to hell. It was late, and Edgar turned in for the night, promising himself that first thing in the morning he would contact the old man's lawyer and talk to him about dissolving the estate. The burden of looking after his uncle had been enough to make Edgar forget why he'd taken him in the first place. The police never called, so the alibi was never needed. After that first day, the flyer had disappeared from the telephone pole, and he hadn't seen another one. Still, something must have been troubling him, at least unconsciously, because his sleep was restless enough that he was woken easily by the sound of someone knocking gently on his front door. It wasn't a fevered pounding designed to wake the sleeping occupants of the house. Rather, it was two gentle raps on the woodwork. Edgar's eyes flicked open at the sound, and he stared at the darkened ceiling. What was that? Was that in his dream, or had somebody actually knocked at his door? He turned his head so that he could see the illuminated display of the alarm clock. 3.23 a.m. He slipped naked from beneath the covers and pulled the blind back a crack from the window. Looking out, the street was a metallic gray-orange, trapped in time by the street lamps. There was no one at his door, and no one in the street. He padded down the stairs silently, and by the time he was standing in the front hall, his eyes had adjusted enough that he could see the piece of paper that had been slipped underneath his door. He picked it up and turned on the light. It was another flyer. Have you seen this girl? Edgar decided then and there that it might, in fact, be prudent to make a personal inventory of his legacy. He packed quickly and called for a cab to take him to the bus station, and from there, onwards to the promised land. So there he sat, Pablo revealed to be a murderous meth addict who lived on the lot, sleeping in a different car each night and prone to springing out when Edgar least expected it, like a Hispanic version of the Chinese guy in the Pink Panther movies. There he sat in his plyboard office, resting precariously atop a stack of cinder blocks at each corner, the shit-brown exterior paintwork peeling and fading like everything else. Like Edgar himself. Anybody home? It was a sonic boom. Something that should only be heard in the wake of a war machine. By Christ, what kind of man could contain a voice like that? Edgar used his fingers to push apart the slats in the Venetian blind and peered out through the accumulated grime on the plexiglass. Nothing. Anybody home? I need an automobile. 
Edgar realized that the source of the voice was closer than he had first thought. In fact, it was coming from right outside the office, on the blind side. I need an automobile? Who said automobile and not car? And who in their right mind would come here to buy either a car or an automobile? Then Edgar remembered that there weren't too many who could be described as being in their right mind in this neighborhood. He slipped his hand underneath the desk and felt it close around the handle of the revolver which Jaime had left duct-taped to the underside. The old man hadn't got many things right, but that was one of them in Edgar's opinion. Come on up to the office, Edgar shouted back, trying to sound welcoming and threatening at the same time. There was a long pause. I think you'd better just come down here. Those steps don't look like they could take that much punishment. What the fuck did that mean? Some morbidly obese moron who couldn't manage a half dozen stairs without a major cardiac event? Yeah, probably. Finally found out that those mobility scooters won't take you as far as the Crisco Arena on a Saturday night for the wrestling. Still, some of those fuckers had money, welfare and disability payments and such. Plus, a lot of them just never left home and inherited from their own fat folks when they finally passed on at the age of 45, hearts crushed under the weight of a million TV dinners. Edgar sighed and pulled the pistol free of the tape under the desk, tucking it into the back of his pants as he stood up. Yeah, okay. Be right out. He hadn't had a single customer since he arrived, and he held no real hope that this was anything but a big fat waste of time, both figuratively and literally. But money was money, and you sometimes had to take chances where you could. When Edgar opened the door and stepped out once more into the harsh California sun, he saw that he had been mistaken. His customer was a behemoth, close to seven feet tall, and as wide as the Mississippi. But if there was an ounce of fat on him anywhere, Edgar couldn't see it. And the man didn't look like a steroid freak either. To Edgar, it looked like that maybe God had gotten bored one day during the creation and had decided to slap some arms and legs on the mountain just for shits and giggles. The dusty black Stetson the man was wearing tipped back slightly as the man raised his head to greet Edgar. With Edgar at the top of the steps and the stranger at the bottom, they could have made eye contact if the stranger's eyes had not remained in shadow beneath the brim of his hat. The voice made sense now. Edgar had been right about the man being weighty, but only insofar as an iceberg or a mountain might have also been considered weighty. The man was a titan. Get too close and his mass would pull you in like a black hole, and then you would die freezing in his shadow and the man was dark. The rest of his clothes were also dusty black, and he wore spurs on the heels of his cracked and broken boots, the tails of the long black duster he wore flapping in a breeze that seemed to spring up out of nowhere. Where's his horse? He'll ask for water for his horse and whiskey for himself, and then he'll ask if I've got any rooms. That's what the stranger does when he rides out of the desert and into town. My Plymouth just up and quit on me about twelve blocks back. He extended an arm like a tree trunk to indicate where he had come from. There's desert that way, 
Sure there is. Little further than twelve blocks, maybe, but if you kept going, you'd hit the desert. I had that car for twenty years, and she never gave me a day of trouble until now. I guess I have been pushing her kind of hard lately. Damn shame. I left her by the side of the road. Sometimes you just know they're gone, and there ain't no point calling AAA. Am I right? The man then extended his hand to introduce himself. Edgar's head was swimming. He began to walk down the steps, and as he drew close, the stranger's shadow fell over him. Just as he feared, it was cold in there. He extended his own hand, and they shook. Edgar expected the hand to try and crush his own, a big man exerting his authority before they began bargaining. But it was gentle, almost a caress. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Uh... Call me Edgar, said Edgar, suddenly sure today was going to be a good day after all, that somehow the arrival of the man in black heralded the start of a new chapter in his life. That's a damn shame about your Plymouth. A man can grow attached over the years, you don't have to tell me. The real shame of it was that Edgar would have made a great salesman. He knew how to talk, knew how to charm, could find a man's level and stay there just as long as it took to convince him that black was white and that birds fly north for winter. But it was a gift that only worked most of the time, not absolutely all of the time. And when it didn't work, Edgar got angry. Edgar got very very angry, just like he did in that bar. Knew you'd understand soon as I laid eyes on you, Hoss. I said to myself, there's a man who understands how things lie. I can see it in his eyes. The stranger smiled and his mouth split open to reveal a set of brilliant white teeth, big as icebergs. Edgar still couldn't see his eyes, though. Even as he was looking up at him, the shadow from his hat still covered them. I hope you'll pardon me for saying so, but a lot of what you've got on display looks like it's seen better days. But I guess you know by looking at me that I ain't in the market for no eco-friendly SUV to ferry the kids around in on the weekend. Well, I don't like to make snap judgments about people, but... I guess I wouldn't be a very good salesman if I hadn't noticed that you were maybe a little bit more individual in your taste than most of my customers. Than most of my customers? What customers? Hush now. I like this here fella, and I like this game. I haven't played in a while, but it feels good. The stranger grinned, again flashing that killer smile. Well, Edgar... I can see I'm going to have to be on my guard with a sharp businessman like yourself, little old country boy like me. Call me Lewis. Now it was Edgar's turn to smile. Well now, Lewis, I think I got just the thing you're looking for if you want. Lewis held up a hand to quiet him. Sorry to interrupt you mid-flow like that, but I've seen what I want, and she wants me too. There's no denying it and I will not be deterred. The only thing we need to dicker about is price. The man's voice may have been a subwoofer with the bass stuck on Max, 
but his accent was hard to place. The heart knows what it wants, right? Am I right? Say, Lewis, if you don't mind me asking, where are you from? Lewis set his jaw and tipped his hat back on his head, revealing his eyes for the first time. And for a fraction of a fraction of a second, they seemed to burn hotter than the sun, causing Edgar to look away. But it must have been a trick of the light. When he looked back, he saw that those eyes were gray and pale and sorrowful. I'm from all over the place these days. Travel a lot for work. You know how it is. But I was born a southern man. Mississippi? asked Edgar, genuinely interested. A wistful look passed over the man's face. Homesickness, perhaps. No, I'm a lot further south than that. Further south than Mississippi? You don't look like no Mexican to me, pal. Okay, well, a genuine southern gentleman, then. Show me what's caught your eye, and let's get down to business. Edgar knew that everything in stock was junk. But there were some classic shells out there. Who knows? Maybe when he wasn't playing the enigmatic drifter, the man knew about cars. Maybe he was a goddamn enthusiast. Edgar had been so dismayed by his inheritance when he had first arrived that he hadn't bothered to take inventory. But he knew there were still a few cars that would have been worth some real money if anyone had ever looked after them even a little. Lewis started toward the area behind the office. The graveyard, as Edgar thought of it. He's been wandering around back here already. How long has he been here? As if he could read Edgar's mind, Lewis began to explain. You know, usually when you step onto a car lot, you get jumped by a bushy salesman straight away, trying to catch you off guard with the bullshit. No offense, hoss. Edgar was still trotting along behind in the big man's wake. None taken, he replied, not sure if it was true. You know, that's what I like about this place. I was able to wander around, take my time, and kick a few tires in peace. That's a good thing for a man like me. I could talk cars all day long, but when it comes to buying one, shoot. That's like courtship. A man needs some time for a thing like that. Needs to make sure he's getting it right. And then Lewis stopped and turned around to face Edgar as the sun passed behind the only cloud in the sky. Like trying to find yourself a sweetheart at the dance. You pick the wrong one and you're going to find yourself regretting it one way or the other. Edgar shifted. They were shielded from the road now and they were standing very close together. Close enough that Edgar could see that he had been foolish to think the man's eyes had ever been gray. Those eyes were black, and they bored into him as if he were a gun barrel, right down to his soul. Then the cloud was gone, and the sun licked Edgar's Kentucky fried skin once more, and he saw his mistake. The man's eyes were gray, and if you had to describe them, you'd say they were almost. Pretty. Pretty like... This here's the one for me, hoss. Edgar's reverie was broken as Lewis slapped the flat of his hand down on the hood of a 75 Cadillac Eldorado 
pushing it down on its springs and leaving it rocking pretty good when he removed his hand again. Strong man to be able to do that with one hand. Yeah, it's a caddy. A three-year-old could get that baby rocking. Why are you so jumpy? How much do you want for her? Edgar examined the car. He did not remember seeing it on the lot before. And yet there was something familiar about it. Edgar had the strangest feeling that maybe he had seen it somewhere before. And not just one like it either, but this one in particular. That was weird. How could you tell one caddy from another? What was left of the paintwork suggested that it would have been midnight blue when it left the factory and dripping in chrome. It was a wreck now, of course. Wouldn't be here if it wasn't. The surface was pitted and dull. The front fender looked like it was fixed on one side with bailing wire. The driver's side headlamp was missing. Can't even pretend it's street legal. And there was a hole the size of a fist. Edgar's fist, not Lewis's, and the radiator grill, and something green like moss that seemed to be growing in there. There wasn't a worse car than this on the lot, and that was saying something. That was saying a whole lot. Oh, no, no, no. We can do better for you than this. What about the Mustang? Have you seen the Mustang? The big man folded his massive arms, and the sleeves of the duster bulged. I've been straight with you, Hoss. I told you I want the car. Now I would surely appreciate it if you would do the same with me. If you've got no intention of selling this little beauty, if you just use it to lure people in so you can talk them into buying some other piece of junk, I want to know right now. Lure people in? Was this guy nuts? It couldn't even be seen from the street. And then it occurred to Edgar. Maybe he was nuts. But so what? A crazy person could have money, and money was money. Ah, uh, you got me, said Edgar. I just wanted to make sure you were serious about her. She's special, but it's not everyone that can see that. I wouldn't want to let her go to just anyone. Someone that might not treat her right. More rustling as Lewis unfolded his arms. Well, okay, then. I can understand that. Let's talk numbers. Not so fast. Why don't you sit in her first? See how she feels on you. You know, the fit is just as important as how she looks. Edgar was cruising now. The spiel came instinctively, dripping like honey from his lips. Edgar stepped around to the driver's door and peered through the window. The keys were in the ignition. It was a wonder that maniac Pablo hadn't stolen it and traded it for three rocks and a blowjob. And then it hit him. It wouldn't start. Of course it wouldn't. Just look at it. But it did start. A Cadillac was a good car for a man of Lewis's stature, mainly because it was the size of a boat. Even so, Edgar expected the giant would have to manhandle himself awkwardly through the door and was surprised to find that this was not the case. He was not surprised, however, when the caddy groaned audibly and sank low on its springs as its new sweetheart slipped behind the wheel. That wasn't because the car had seen better days. That was just physics. 
Edgar sat in the shotgun seat and closed the passenger side door. If he'd been a praying man, he would have been praying then. Lewis's fist enveloped the key and gave it a turn, and the engine exploded into life immediately, the sweetest sound Edgar had ever heard. Lewis broke into his face-splitting grin again. To get the caddy to the road, Edgar had to move four other cars, and it took him a good ten minutes to find all the keys in the chaos of the office. Even then, two of them wouldn't start, an Oldsmobile giving out one final wheezy death rattle, and a Pontiac which delivered nothing but a dry click. But nothing was going to deter Lewis, and with him on board it was a simple matter to just push the cars aside. In fact, it was Lewis who did all the pushing, Edgar leaning in through the open doors and steering while running alongside. Edgar was sure the test drive would finally kill this deal dead, that what Lewis couldn't see with his eyes, he would at least be able to feel in his ass. True, the engine was running like a dream, but that wouldn't stop the car from listing violently when it took a corner at more than ten miles an hour. or. Maybe that should be more violently. It was a caddy, after all. Or from backfiring. Or from the wheel bearings grinding. Or at least a dozen other things that simply must be wrong with this car. But it drove like a dream. Not only was it the size of a boat, it sailed like a boat. The caddy fairly glided along the cracked and pitted road, the springs and the white walls absorbing every pothole and as they slowly toured the neighboring streets, the human detritus that had blighted Edgar's life ever since his arrival stopped in their tracks to stare in wonder and in awe, their pipes and their knives forgotten as the caddy cut a majestic swath through their presence. To Edgar, it looked as if whatever spell Lewis was under was also infecting the minds of these other scumbags. Seriously, it was like no one had ever seen a Cadillac before. It did not take long for Edgar to become buoyed by the success. Lewis was making lefts and rights without direction, as if he knew these roads well and was not afraid of getting lost. But Edgar didn't notice. He was seeing dollars. This guy was smitten. There was no way he was leaving without the car, and Edgar thought he could actually make some decent scratch. Maybe as much as fifteen hundred bucks. Enough to get him out of this shithole, at least. She's smooth, ain't she? I don't have to sell her to you. She sells herself. Edgar relaxed in his seat, enjoying the sound of his own voice in his ears, the way he imagined others might enjoy it. Why don't we head to the freeway? Get her over 25. See what she can really do. Caddy's not meant to be driven fast. Lewis shot back immediately, his massive jaw taking on a determined set while his eyes remained fixed to the road, the tone of his voice dropping the temperature in the car by 10 degrees instantly. From out of nowhere, there came a smell. There hadn't even been a whiff of a scent when they first got in. And wasn't there something very wrong about that? These old junkers had all had half a dozen careless owners minimum before they got to Jaime, and they all reeked. Even after Pablo had scrubbed them, the intermingled sense of sex and blood still clung to the upholstery underneath the antiseptic tang of bleach. 
But what he smelled was so much worse. A river at low tide spewing up its stench, the decomposition of once-living things. Edgar gagged violently. Y'all right there, hoss? Lewis turned to him and asked, friendly again, concerned, the anger already passed, as if it had never been there at all. Edgar loosened his collar. He felt beads of perspiration on his forehead, even as the goose flesh was forming on his arms. You don't... He stopped himself just in time. What, smell that? You were gonna ask him if he could smell that? Dumbass! Get the sail made, and let's get out of here. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, so what do you say? You like her? Oh, brother, I don't just like her. I love her. Back at the lot, Edgar started the negotiations at 2000, figuring he would have to be the world's worst salesman to come out of this with less than a grand. On hearing this figure, Lewis looked disgusted, and for one tense moment, he thought the man was going to jack him. But when he reached into the inside pocket of his duster, what he brought out was a bankroll, not a weapon. It was at least fifty bills thick and secured with a rubber band. Lewis licked his thumb. Edgar actually heard the callus there rasp against the man's tongue before snapping off five bills from the top. He replaced the roll in his pocket and then gently grasped Edgar's hand and laid the bills, all thousands, into Edgar's outstretched hand. And I'm robbing you with that price, Lewis said, then added, Piece of advice. You got something beautiful. Don't ever sell it short. Fucking fruitcake. Five grand for that piece of shit. It was ridiculous and it was joyous. Enough to get out and try his luck somewhere else. Vegas, maybe? Who cares? As long as it's far away from here and all the freaks and lowlifes. Edgar spent half an hour in the office packing what few possessions he had and burning any paperwork that had his name attached in a metal waste paper basket. He grabbed the keys to a Pinto, one of the other cars on the lot that he knew would start intending to drive as far as the bus station and ditch it there. But when he opened the door and stepped outside his office once more, he saw the caddy was back, parked right next to the short flight of wooden steps, and the stranger was standing next to it. How long was he here this time, and how come I didn't hear him come back? Think we got a problem here, Hoss? Oh, yeah? Now what might that be? Edgar descended slowly as he spoke, thinking about running. The cash was in his pocket, and he had a small pack slung over one shoulder, but he could ditch that if need be. Massive as he was, Edgar figured that there was no way this guy was going to catch him on foot. But then he remembered it was a crazy man he was dealing with, and suddenly got a flash of himself being dragged under the wheels of the Cadillac. A long red smear left on the road as the stranger roared off into the distance, tires screeching, head out the window and howling like a wolf. He decided to see how this might play out. The stranger began to speak. 
Well, I'd gone about five blocks, and she was driving just as sweet as you like, purring into my ear. But then I had to stop for a red light, and when I pulled away again, she started making this knocking sound. Bang, bang, bang. The stranger smacked one massive fist into the palm of his other hand to demonstrate. Been doing that ever since, so I brought her back to you. Edgar thought about his options. If the guy turned ugly, he didn't have a chance. There would be no passing cop to intervene, and any other passers-by would likely as not only stop to yell encouragement and bay for blood. Still, he had the money in his pocket, and he wasn't about to give it up so easily. The stranger was crazy, but even crazy could sometimes be reasoned with. Well, that's a shame, Edgar said. Probably a wheel bearing. Nothing I can do about that. Sold as seen, my friend. Sold as seen. And she was fine on the test drive. Which was true. She had been fine on the test drive. And wasn't that just as crazy as the Goliath in cowboy boots standing before him? Thud. 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 Edgar jumped. See? Said the stranger, grinning. Vindicated. That's what I'm talking about. What the hell is that? You got someone in the trunk? And then he remembered. The girl. The bar. The car. The lake. That's why the car seemed familiar. He had seen it before today after all. Had been in it before today. The stranger's eyes lit up. Yeah, that's just what it sounds like. Someone in the trunk. We'd best check on that. As Lewis reached in through the window and under the dashboard, Edgar fell to his knees, dry heaving. Lewis pushed the button, and as the trunk popped open, gallon after gallon of water, brackish and green and teeming with leaf litter, poured out. It flooded over the backs of Edgar's hands, who was on all fours by then, and as the smell of the bottom of the lake once again exploded into his nostrils, he vomited. Lewis stepped to the trunk, careful not to get any splashes on his boots, and used one hand to raise the lid all the way up. Edgar raised his head and saw a small blue hand flop over the side of the trunk. At first it appeared totally lifeless, but slowly... The fingers started to move and grip the edge of the trunk as its owner began to pull herself out. Edgar could see the top of her head, short dark hair plastered to her skull, matted with mud and pondweed. She managed to flop her other shoulder over the edge of the trunk and began to inch forward, quickly reaching her tipping point. She toppled over the edge and sprawled onto the ground, no more than two feet from Edgar. Edgar felt his bowels clench violently, and he retched again, but there was nothing left to bring up. He watched helplessly as the woman began to push herself up slowly, first supporting herself on her elbows, then extending her arms fully so her weight was on the palms of her hands, and finally shakily rising up onto her legs. 
Her hair hung down in front of her face, but Edgar recognized her nonetheless. She was naked apart from the halter top which clung to her small breasts. He remembered ripping off her shorts and underwear after he had brought the rock down on her skull. Her body rocked convulsively, and she staggered on her feet as her head was thrown violently backwards. As it rocked forward again, her hands went toward her throat, which was beginning to swell, and her fingers clawed uselessly at the rotten blue flesh there. Her eyes rolled up into her skull as she began to gag, lips splitting apart to reveal the darkness inside. Her jaw kept working like a ratchet, moving her lips and her teeth apart wider still. Impossibly wide, it seemed to Edgar, as her body undulated before him. Edgar whimpered, unable to look away. Her jaw was then stretched beyond any reasonable limit, and it seemed to Edgar that her face would simply split in two, when all of a sudden she bent forward, hands on her knees, and heaved up a solid, black, stinking mass, followed by a gallon of lake water. It was a fish, nearly a foot long, and as fat as Edgar's fist. The blackness of its scales contrasted with the livid whiteness of its belly. Still alive, it flopped around helplessly in the puddle of vomit water that had accompanied its birth. Edgar watched, paralyzed with fear until it eventually flopped close enough for its tail to brush against his fingers, and then he screamed. You okay, darling? Come here. We don't want you catching the cold. The girl was holding herself, shivering, but her cheeks were already beginning to show a faint hint of color. Lewis removed his duster and swept it elegantly over the girl's shoulders, and she clutched it to her body. Her shoulders moved up and down as she worked to gulp down air and she was shivering now, goose flesh punctuating the blueness on her arms. But she was struggling to speak nonetheless. B-b-b-b-b-bastard! A stuttering hiss accompanied by another drool of lake water from the corner of her mouth. Lewis stood behind her and enveloped her with his body. She was a tiny doll against him. Bastard! This time her eyes met Edgar's, and he felt his bladder let go. Do you know what he did to me? It was directed at Lewis, but her eyes never left Edgar. I know, replied Lewis simply. I know. He stuck his thing in me. He bashed me with a rock, and then when he thought I was dead, he stuck his thing in me. A whole bunch of times. The color flared crimson in her cheeks as she found momentum. He stole that piece of shit Cadillac, and he put me in the trunk. Then he drove to the lake, and he pushed us both in. Except I wasn't dead. And then Edgar looked to her hands and saw the fingernails, cracked, broken, missing. She nodded and used the back of her hand to wipe her mouth. Well then, good. Lewis leaned down and kissed the top of her head, and then stepped out from behind the girl. Looks like we've got a bigger problem than I thought. 
His voice was calm, but as he spoke, he used his hands to adjust his hat, casting his eyes once more into shadow. Supporting himself with one hand, Edgar stretched out the other towards Lewis. His lips moved wordlessly, nothing escaping them apart from one choked, pleading sob. Get in the car, Edgar. We're going for another drive. When Edgar didn't move, Lewis squatted down on his haunches and leaned into his face. Still, Edgar couldn't see his eyes. Edgar, you ever seen anything like that before? As he asked this, he gestured behind him to where the girl stood with her arms outstretched and her eyes closed, basking in the sun. Edgar just about managed to shake his head, and Lewis gave a nod in response. I thought not. When I ask you to do something, Edgar, it's politeness, plain and simple. I was raised a certain way. And though I may have strayed from the path, some habits are hard to shake. But it's a foolish man who mistakes politeness for anything other than what it is. That's a lesson you need to learn the hard way. Now get in the car. Edgar managed to push himself to his feet and staggered toward the car where he slumped against the passenger side door. What the hell do you think you're doing? Edgar turned to face Lewis, uncomprehending. You, right in the back. The big man jerked his thumb toward the trunk, which was still open. For one brief moment, Edgar thought about resisting. But Lewis made as if to start toward him, and he scuttled around the car as fast as he could, tumbling himself clumsily into the trunk when he got there. The girl slammed down the lid quick and hard, deliberately catching the top of Edgar's head as she did. She turned to embrace her man, and they kissed long and hard. When they were finally ready to let each other go again, she spoke. Where are you taking him, anyway? Well, darling, he thought I was from Mississippi when I told him I was a southern man. I thought I'd show him just how far south it's possible to get. I'm taking him home. Well, hurry back. Look what happened last time you kept me waiting. I'll be back as quick as I can, and then I'll take you for a proper ride in this fine automobile. As he fired up the engine and eased the caddy off the lot and back onto the road, the sky was on fire with the sun dropping in the west. That was Peter White's used cars as read by Drew Sebastini. You haven't experienced true horror until you've weathered a winter in the bleak, frozen wastes of the Canadian prairies, and Drew has survived quite a few. He's been spinning tales since he was old enough to hold a pencil, most often, Drew flexes his creative muscles as an advertising copywriter and creative director. He hopes that you won't hold that against him. But in his spare time, he moonlights as a voiceover artist for radio and video commercial work. Drew lives in Saskatoon, Canada with his wife, son, and a menagerie of furry creatures. Thank you, Drew. 
That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found our humble podcast. Our show is produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.